From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Podvocate. I'm your host, Andy Vandenbush. Today, we're jumping into another episode of Law School's Greatest Hits. In this series, I hope to talk with law students and law educators on their understanding of a case while breaking down the backstory that leads us to the law books. Today, I sit down with 3L Francisco Barrio, and we unpack the history of Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Please note that all comments made on this episode are solely held by the individual and are not representative of their employers or of Loyola University Chicago School of Law. I am joined today by Francisco Barrio. Hey, Fran, how are you doing? Hi, Andy. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Good. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you you doing this. So uh, before we jump in and kind of like talk about what we're going to actually go through today, would you mind just kind of giving me a little bit of who are you? What do you do with your law school life right now? Yeah, of course. Well, like I said, my name, well, like you said, my name is Francisco Barrio, 3L in the Weekend JD program with you and uh, the rest of our wonderful cohort. Uh, I live in Chicago, grew up in Chicago, born in California, but have been living in Chicago in the Chicagoland area uh, since I was six years old. I grew up in Chicago Heights, South Suburb. Uh, Halstead actually cuts right through it. Um, and I live really close to Halstead now. So it's just kind of weird to be like, oh, same street. Uh, just, you know, parents are down the street. Um, I work as a technology trainer at a law firm, which is kind of why I became interested in going to law school in the first place. I was nosy, I guess. And I started looking at the work that the attorneys were doing. This is the second law firm that I worked at now as a tech trainer in both times. Just, you know, interest got the best of me. And uh, here I am in law school, got a year and a semester, well, a little less than a semester now left uh, until finally wrap up and uh, see what the what the attorney lifestyle is like. Well, there's no turning back now. So the, yeah, right. <laughs> we're in it. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you are the president of the Loyola Latinx Law Student Association, correct? That's correct. Yeah. You got and it. So I, I did. I did. <laughs> uh, and so I guess my my question for you is like, would you mind just talking a little bit about like the association, some of the stuff yeah. that you you like you're working on now, some of the stuff that you've done in the past? Yeah, absolutely. So the Loyola Latinx Law Student Association, or uh, LOLSA, as it's also known as one of Loyola's many affinity groups, um, the focus of it is connecting students or students that are members to scholarship opportunities, networking opportunities, um, and having another space to build community. So one of the things that we started up this past semester is this monthly event that we have called Pan en Cafecito, where over this past semester, it was me that would bring in uh, Mexican sweetbread, pan dulce, Saturday or Sunday morning, depending on on when there was more interest. And we would just set up Mexican sweetbread, pan dulce in a room and 
allow student members, actually, whether you're a member of LULSA or not, to come in, have a piece of bread, sit down, hang out, talk with other members, take the bread with you to go. If you have class that morning as a weekend student, you know, some of our classes would start as early as 8, 20, 9 a.m. And uh, yeah, it it it's a lot of just community building and connecting our students to to resources. The This past semester, we had, we started off the semester with a, a panel um, for available to students to come in and ask one of the justices in the Chicago area questions. Um, and he was able to connect the students with a couple of networking opportunities. In April, we're planning on hopefully getting an author of a really uh, good influential book. We can't reveal the details just yet uh, to come in and speak to students, have uh, students ask questions, kind of hopefully merging that into like a networking opportunity to bring in other practicing attorneys in the area and offering CLE credit for them. It's all a work in progress right now. The semester, I mean, I want to say it just started, but we're already in February. Uh, yeah, just doing things like that, connecting students to, to to different opportunities and resources that are available and out there. I guess my, my follow-up question to that, and I'll, I'll stop bugging you about this. No, when, please go um, ahead. So is there like a membership requirement to go to these events or is this kind of like anybody can show up and we're just like, what what's going on there? There's no, there's no membership requirement. It's, it's a very laid back organization and being in my third year now, it makes perfect sense that it's structured this way. I think it's actually probably best that it is structured this way as you're very well aware. And there are any law student listeners right now, I'm sure they're very well aware too, even if you're just going into your second semester at Loyola. Law school is busy, uh, you know, newsflash. And being a member in an organization, whether it's LULSA or any of the other groups, you know, making that high stress kind of becomes counterintuitive to the entire idea behind having that group available. So we kind of just let our members know what's going on, what's happening, what's out there. And we just want to make sure that they're they're aware of all the all the opportunities and resources that are out there. There's no attendance requirement. If if you can show up, great. If you can make it to any of the uh, any of the events that we host, that's awesome. Uh, but there's no it's supposed to be low stress being a part of it. And uh, I think we're we're planning on kind of maintaining that that requirement throughout, or lack of requirement throughout. That's great. So let's let's jump into the meat of this. If you are excited, um, what we're going to talk about today is, uh, like I've explained before, this is an episode in a series that I like to call Law School's Greatest Hits, where we take a case that you cover usually in a 1L or 2L class in one of your really basic courses, and we we talk about the case itself, but instead of actually briefing it like like we're so used to, where we only know about uh, you know, the the facts and what's the issue and what is the holding and where, well, how did we get there? Uh, we're actually going to try to talk about the story. So the story we are talking about today is Citizens United. Um, and I guess before I even get started, what is your uh, comfort level? What is your understanding? What is your relationship with Citizens United and the Citizens United decision? I'll be just very honest and candid here. I have a um, surface level understanding. I'm familiar with the case in kind of like the facts, um, the and, and the holding. But once we start getting into like the analysis of it all, at least from pulling out those details uh, from recall in my memory, I get very shaky there. And maybe that's just giving a little bit of insight into how I feel sometimes around 
uh, briefing cases in general still on the spot. Uh, but uh, it's actually funny that we're discussing this case right now because um, I'm in uh, business organizations and kind of like what we're discussing in business organizations. And we've only, I mean, we've just had our first class. We're only going into our second class this coming weekend. Uh, the What we're learning there is already just directly connecting with what Citizens United is about, kind of like the the foundation of it um, and the, the ability of a corporation to use their platform uh, to influence uh, the outcome of an election. You know, and it's it's almost like you're a mind reader because we are going to talk a little bit about that. There is a little bit that I want to talk about is the power of corporations and kind of the argument for and against that shows up in the in this case specifically. Um, but I I I will be honest with you, Citizens United was found was was decided in 2010. Mm-hmm. So I mean, even then, I was supposed to be politically active. You know, 20 year old me. And or twenty three year old me, and I f- didn't fully understand it myself. Yeah, we've we've both experienced constitutional law where we're supposed to understand this, yeah. and and I will tell you, I had a passing knowledge of it myself. So uh, before we go ahead and start, I do want to talk about a, a couple of the sources for today's episode. We've got um, oea.org, which is like my favorite place to go because if you go there, you can actually listen to Supreme Court arguments. Um, and so that's why I consider it oyay.org. Um, <laughs> and then there is the Legal Information Institute at Cornell University. Um, there is a really great Radio Lab spinoff podcast episode specifically about Citizens United. Um, this podcast is called The More Perfect Podcast, and they the episode is literally Citizens United. SCOTUS blog has some information that I've pulled today, and our good friends at Quimby. Let's get started. And so what we're going to do is before we even think about the case itself, we have to kind of jump back in time to get some context. And so we're going to jump to 1974. And here we are, 1974, not putting you on the spot. What is the big <laughs> thing that happened in 1974? I, I, off the top of my head, I, I don't Watergate. know. Watergate. Oh, oh so of we've course. Just experienced, <laughs> we've just experienced Watergate. We've just discovered that Nixon is a crook. And so... Watergate happens, uh, which is a time in the United States history where the president of the United States was caught doing illegal activity, which was basically gathering dirt on his Democratic opponents. What made this such a big deal was that Nixon was also using some of his campaign funds to get these jobs done. In response to that, the United States government set up what is known as the Federal Election Commission or the FEC. Um, And the FEC was formed as a way to regulate the dollars that are funded into elections. So um, hoping that money isn't going to be this catalyst that's going to corrupt the political process. Before that, money could kind of go wherever it wanted to. The FEC gets established and now they're saying, "Eh, there are some things that we can regulate here. So this then becomes bolstered in 2002. And what gets passed in Congress is known as the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. We also call it McCain-Feingold because those were the two um, those were the two big names at the top of the ticket. Um, we've got McCain on the Republican side. We've got Russ Feingold on the Democratic side. Um, and the whole point of McCain-Feingold was to limit the kind of money that was being used in elections. So election money still can we can still give our money to political candidates. But what was happening 
was that corporations are not allowed to use their corporate funds to directly support any candidate. And so what was happening instead, what they allowed instead was they could take that money and donate it to a group that supports things politically, which uh, we call those PACs or political action committees. And what they can do is they can go ahead, they can make their ads, they can produce their flyers, they can have their their rallies or whatever it is. And so, so the money isn't coming directly from the corporations, it's coming from the PAC. And the PAC is then kind of this, uh, it's supposed to be this transparent kind of buffer between the money and the candidate themselves. Now, we're going to jump ahead two years. And so we're now in 2004, and there is this film that is released that is called Fahrenheit 9-11 by a director known as Michael Moore. Um, and are you familiar with this film? I'm familiar with it in that I remember when it came out, the buzz in around it. But yeah, in name only, honestly. And yeah. I remember it being such a big deal, but in 2004, like you were kind of describing earlier, I feel like I didn't start getting a lot more politically conscious until, I mean, for me, it was 2016, 2015, 2016. Like I kind of had like blinders on the entire time, right. really just because that's how my family approached politics as well. And um, I, mean, it, I, I think I was a junior in high school. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's uh, 2004, this filmmaker, Michael Moore. The thing about Michael Moore is he was super controversial, but he was also, I shouldn't say was, he's still alive. Uh, Michael <laughs> Moore is very controversial in the sense that he is incredibly left-wing. And at the time, uh, I mean, if we just think about the political climate of the the early 2000s and the early aughts is we, I, I almost feel like we were in that, I guess the word I want to look at is like that in-between phase that like things weren't super conservative so much anymore. Yeah. But we weren't really accepting a lot of like progressive ideas. Those, those were deemed a little bit too, uh, too off center, I guess, which is mm-hmm. where we were. Um, and so he had made a lot of, a lot of documentaries that some people could argue were propaganda. Um, one of those was Fahrenheit 9-11, which was basically talking about how the, the Bush administration had failed in their attempts at protecting us as a nation. Um, and, you know, he, he also made um, another film called Bowling for Columbine, which was right after, um, which was right after the Columbine shooting, which is like the first major school shooting in United States history. Um, and that was, that main focus was on, um, you know, gun control and why we should be more cognizant of mental health issues, which at the time, I guess, was really a big deal, was really progressive. And now those are things that we talk about all the time. But essentially, at the same time, what is going on is we have this really tight presidential race between George W. Bush and John Kerry. And in this like maelstrom of intense media coverage, we've also got all of these political ads running that are saying, you know, vote for Bush, vote for Kerry. Kerry's got all these ideas. Bush knows how to how to run the country back and forth. And at the same time, we have these advertisements going on for Fahrenheit 9-11, which is basically saying that George Bush was a failed president. And what essentially happened was this made a lot of conservatives and the the Bush campaign very nervous because it was almost as if Michael Moore was making a political ad for John Kerry against President Bush just with his movie. Um, and so 
they weren't super thrilled about it. And at the time, Bush's numbers were poll numbers were down and they were at a point where they were like, Eesh, this is really making us uncomfortable. And they felt like Fahrenheit 9-11 had something to do with it. So they were pretty sure that they were going to fight back against this film. What they did was there was this group known as Citizens United, uh, which is a conservative action group, which is which supports a lot of conservative causes. And they came up with this idea that, you know what? We have this film. This is They say it's a documentary. Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to make our own documentary. And they called that documentary Celsius 4111. Just curious, what is Celsius 4111, you think? I mean, after taking a course in intellectual property law, if I saw that tell, I'd be like, that sounds like a parody. It's <laughs> definitely a parody. <laughs> Celsius, so uh, 41.11 degrees Celsius is the temperature at which the brain begins to die. So what they were saying was this was a direct response to Michael Moore and the liberals listening, to, like watch, having their brains rot by watching Fahrenheit 9-11. So we have Celsius 4111. The thing that happens is they get ready to make this movie. It's it's in it's in the working phases. They have it made. They're ready to advertise and they get this huge roadblock. And that roadblock is the Federal Election Commission. And what the FC, FEC ends up telling them is, you cannot advertise this film. You can make it, you just can't advertise it. And the reason is, they they basically point to um, McCain-Feingold, they point to the regulations that are set up by the FEC, and they say, you are a corporate entity. You are using your corporate funds to make a movie and then make advertisements that say, vote for George Bush or do not vote for John Kerry. Um, and they get a little bit confused by this. And the reason that they're confused is they're saying, but why not? Why can't we advertise this? Michael Moore is advertising his. He's made a movie that literally is saying that George Bush is a failed president. Why can't we make a movie combating all of the things that he's saying? And then they throw out this, they throw out this special card that says, but, but, but he is the media and the media has an exception. You are a corporation. You don't have that corporate, you don't have that corporate exception. So because they were a corporate entity, they could not advertise for this movie. And so it kind of like thwarts them. George Bush ends up winning the election anyway, but you know, this basically emboldened Citizens United to kind of insert themselves into the documentary making business. And so they they create this branch of Citizens United. They they basically make a section that's like Citizens United Media, where they do nothing but make documentary films. And they are about a number of conservative issues. It it gets it gets kind of thrown around into the public con consciousness. They reversed the uh, the FEC Zuno card. Yes, yes, they sure did. They definitely did. That that's that's a really great way of putting it. So <laughs> the thing is, though, now we are four years later, and now we are in two thousand and eight, and so this is after George Bush's second um, second term in office, and so he can't run again, and so now we've got this new this new set of people that are going to to jump in. And at the same time, if we're like taking that camera lens and we're, we're putting it at, we're putting it, uh, directing it at a specific group of people, the first group of people we're looking at are the democratic contenders. And there are two big names there that are leading in who should be on the, the ticket for president. And do you remember those names? Ah. 2008. 
think one of them might have started with a with an O. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. An O B uh, O B A. Yes. yes. Maybe <laughs> maybe some hope that you yeah remember yeah that. yeah yeah yeah. A lot of a lot of uh, posters. A lot of blue and red posters. <laughs> so we've got Barack Obama, and then we also have this other person. Yep. And that other person is named Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. So at this time, what does Citizens United do? They make another movie, and this movie is called Wait for It, Hillary the Movie. And this is a honestly brilliant, brilliant. I, I, right? Right? Uh, so no some, question uh, about what you're going to see, <laughs> right? It's, right. It's in the title. So with this movie, they basically are saying how unfit Hillary Clinton is, but they hate. They say nothing about her candidacy for president. They say nothing about her being a being a name in the primaries. It's really just saying, look at how terrible and awful Hillary Clinton is as a political figure. Now, the thing is, they make this movie, it's 90 minutes, it has everything they need to say, they have all the talking heads they they want in it, and they get ready to advertise, and the FEC jumps in again, and they say, no, 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 you cannot do this, and you cannot do this because you are a corporation, you don't have a media exemption. And basically, what they're saying is, again, sorry, we can't advertise this film, McCain-Feingold says that you cannot do that. And this is the provision that they are specifically talking about. In McCain-Feingold, there is a provision that a corporate entity is not allowed to endorse or attack a candidate within 30 to 60 days before an election or before a primary. So yes, they have their media wing, but what the FEC is saying is still at the end of the day, you are a corporation that is making this film, you're advertising it. We can't let you do that right now. After the election, fine. Before before the the sixty day mark, sure. But you cannot do it during. So they're essentially thwarted for the exact same reason that they they were thwarted the, the first time. Despite the media branch thing. Despite the media branch thing, and and I I can't necessarily say what the reason is. Like I don't know why that the the CU branch of this is is not kosher. And Michael Moore was. I don't know. Um, but they, they're they still saying, you are a corporation, you are using corporate funds, we can't have you do this. In response, see, uh, Citizens United basically just says, you know what, fine, we are going to sue the FEC, we're not going to let them stop us, we are going to sue them because they are violating our free speech. And so what they're saying was, this is a censorship, a censorship of personal speech, and that corporations should be allowed to endorse candidates if they believe that they're the right choice. And this is where it actually gets pretty intense. So Citizens United takes the FEC to court, they take them to federal court, and at first they lose. Um, And when they lose, they directly appeal the Supreme Court. And this is when they are granted the ability to be heard in front of SCOTUS. And basically the case here is is this provision in McCain-Feingold unconstitutional because is it limiting uh, free speech? Is it limiting the ability for people to speak freely about political candidates? I'm breaking my rule already uh, because I am going to say that I think the spiciness and the drama comes in the oral argument and not so much in like the history where, uh, you know, before when we're talking about like, Lawrence versus Texas. Well, we got to know that story. That's great. But here, I really do think the argument 
and the oral arguments themselves, and then kind of the stuff that happens afterwards before they even make a decision is where it really gets juicy and it really gets really interesting. So basically the arguments happen here and, and what's, we start with the Citizens United side and their biggest argument is basically that Citizens United Media was creating an informational documentary to share with the masses that could decide on their own who they wanted to vote for. They were not, um, they, they were in no way endorsing one candidate or another. They were just saying, listen, Hillary Clinton is a garbage human and we want you to know about it. And the, the driving point that Ted Olson, who's the attorney for Citizens United at the time, like his driving point is like, this is an informational documentary. And what's funny is if you actually listen to the radio, radio lab episode, he says it like 50 times, like in his opening statements, he says 90 minute documentary, 90 minute informational documentary, a ton of times to try and like get home this point that this is not propaganda. This is an informational 90 minute documentary. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good pick your angle and stick to it, I guess. I mean, right. Uh, so what Radiolab kind of makes a joke about is that it it gets to the point where he says it so much that, you know, like you hear a word so many times that you like, it doesn't sound like anything anymore. It just sounds like mush. Um, that That's how often he was saying documentary, 90 minute documentary and informational <laughs> documentary. Basically, their point was that this wasn't an issue of electioneering. This was an issue of free speech. Before we can go ahead and like say, all right, Citizens United, fine. We should probably understand what electioneering is. What is electioneering? You tell me. No, great. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I will. I have it all set up here. Um, So basically, if we're if we're understanding electioneering, um, Cornell University and the Legal Information Institute basically says that electioneering is this process where any political group convinces voters to cast ballots for or against particular candidates. So in McCain-Feingold and the the FEC regulations were saying that corporations couldn't participate in electioneering in that 30-60 day time period. So basically anything that said like vote for, support, cast ballots for, anything, any kind of language that that is trying to convince a person to vote in a particular way is going to be considered electioneering. And what SCOTUS believes, and they had actually ruled on this earlier, was this idea that electioneering was so powerful that it was something that Congress could be allowed, or I shouldn't say just Congress, but that the government should be allowed to regulate. It's it's just that it's influential. Just yes, it's that influential. And if you have corporations who are holding massive amounts of money literally telling you how you should vote, that's that's a, that's gets a little bit sticky. So again, Olson uh, for for Citizens United um, was basically saying that nowhere in this documentary do we tell anybody to to vote. We don't tell them how to vote. We don't tell them what we think about who you who you think should should be chosen in this election. They're simply sharing that there is a woman out there who has a really dark past and is a really terrible leader and trash. And they, she just happens to be running for president. So these two things are mutually exclusive. We should have been allowed to advertise this. It's um, not our fault she happens to be running right now. Exactly, exactly. That is exactly what they said. 
this is, you know, very predictable. Like everybody knew this was this was where the argument was going to go. And even the questions from from uh, the justices are really standard. So they're asking things like, come on, you've got you're telling me that there is no way that this this is not electioneering when you're literally using these very specific words to describe her. You're calling her a liar. You're calling her cunning. You're, you're saying that she is that, you know, she is a despicable person. And you're telling me that's not electioneering. You're not telling someone how to vote. And then they also ask questions about like, well, okay, where do we draw the line? What's a political ad then? Like, what's the difference between a 10 second political ad and a 90 minute infomercial or a 90 minute documentary? And they basically come back to the same conclusion. And that is Citizens United just is like a dog with a bone. And they keep saying, but you don't understand this isn't a political ad. We are just giving information. That is that is what this is about. We are just sharing information. Sorry, she happens to be running for president. That is, but we can't do anything about that. We're not we're not telling her to stop running. We're not telling her to run. We are telling people we don't like her. Facts are facts. Facts are facts. Exactly. That's what we're putting out there. Yes. So then enter the FEC lawyer, Malcolm Stewart, and this is where it starts to get really unpredictable because Malcolm Stewart thinks that this is a slam dunk. Like there's how in any way can you say that this is not electioneering? Like this is, we've got this. It's like, he literally walks in and he's like electioneering swish. We are done. But what happens is it's the conservative justices that start throwing out these curveball questions that I don't think anybody was really expecting or if they were expecting they thought that their answer was so solid that it was like ready to go so basically what stewart is is proposing in his in his argument is that there is no other way to describe the purpose of this film how can you say why why do we care about a movie about this woman who is so bad there's nothing you can't tell me one you can't tell me otherwise and so he basically creates this bright line test And the bright line test is that if a reasonable person could not believe that there is any other way to describe a thing, it's got to be the thing. So in this way, he's saying, if, if this is the attorney for the FEC, correct? Yes. Yes. I know how much SCOTUS loves bright line tests. Yes. (laughs) And so what he's, what he's basically trying to, to establish for them is saying like, Listen, a reasonable person cannot look at this movie and say, this is not political propaganda. And so then that's when conservative justices start going out. And one of the questions that gets thrown out is literally, so let's say Walmart advertises, we have a Barack Obama action figure and you should go buy it. Is that electioneering if it falls within the 30 to 60 day period? And they respond, if it falls within 30 to 60 days of a primary or an election, yes, it is electioneering and you can stop them from selling it. So then they start to push it. They start to stress test this and they say, okay, but what did the constitution really want them to say? What did what did our original framers really want us to do when we're talking about Congress and we're talking about making these uh, these regulations? What, what, what are they really trying to well, limit here? You know how much the... Original framers were thinking about Hillary the movie and Barack Obama they, action figures at Walmart. You, I they they were thinking about the moving picture of Hillary Clinton <laughs> running for president exactly, and so so they really do push and they start talking about things like okay, so what about like 
DVDs? What about videos that you could rent or purchase or like movies that you go out and see just normally or or even books? What's going and they and they start and they ask very pointedly, uh, you know, like, so what would the Constitution permit? Would would the Constitution permit this restriction on books? Really? And this is where we start to hear if you actually listen to the oral arguments, this is the point where Stuart starts to feel like he's backed into a corner and starting to realize like, yikes. And this is and his response is, I think the Constitution would have permitted Congress to apply the election, the electioneering communication restrictions to the extent that they were otherwise. And then he gets cut off. So he was basically saying, like, well, Congress doesn't think that these these electioneering restrictions, of course, the Constitution would allow this. And he gets cut off by Alito. And Alito says, wait a minute, that's an incredible thing you're trying to say. You think that if a book was published, a campaign biography, for example, that was the functional equivalent of uh, electioneering, we could ban that. And then it's it's almost like you can hear the like, oh no, in his voice, like, oh no, what have I done? Oh, oh God, oh geez. Pressure and in the room shifts. Exactly, exactly. And so now he starts, so now Stuart, so for the, the lawyer for the FEC starts playing with semantics and starts playing with words. And he's saying, I'm not saying banning. We're not, nobody's talking about banning. The FEC isn't about banning books. What I'm saying is that Congress could prohibit the use of corporate treasury funds and could require a corporate and could require a corporate entity and he gets cut off again. And Alito jumps back in and he says, so you're saying if any book uses a candidate's name even one time, we can ban it because it's electioneering. And so, and he throws out this really, he throws out this really, really, really specific option. And it's, so let's say we got a 500 page book and at the very end, it says vote for so-and-so, we can ban that book. And Stewart has to say, the language would be considered express advocacy and would be covered by FEC provisions. And they are, at this point, it's it's like kind of, again, it's like kind of fun. And I feel like I'm geeking out about this at this point, that like they're dancing around this idea that the justices really want him to say, yes, we would have to ban the book. And they're, they're not there yet, but they're very, 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 very close. They're basically trying to throw out as specific a, a situation as possible. And so then this really turns into like a power struggle. So we've got this back and forth going. But what if there's a book that uses someone's name? Can we ban it if it falls in that period? And um, and they eventually get him to finally say the thing that they wanted him to say. They finally get to the point where the justices like corner him into the point where he finally has to admit. So let's say we've got a book that has electioneering in it. It falls. It's it's published within the 30 to 60 day period. The FEC would prohibit the publication of the book. And according to all these people that were there, there is you could literally hear a pin drop because how in the world can you say the government is allowed to ban books? Because that's that is the heart of what the conservative justices were trying to get at was you're telling me that the government is allowed to limit speech even if it's in something like a publication or a book, the government can stop that, which really wasn't the point that he was trying to make. No. I mean, it, whenever these arguments it, come up, it never is. It always just turns on something. So something that seems like it's 
like why would that even get brought up but it's what right. the entire argument is ends up turning on right and that's that's exactly what happens here is is i guess i i guess i'm i'm saying this in the I'm saying this for journalism. Well, we'll put the, we'll put this that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. It sounds very it sounds very clear that if we are if we take a step back, that the conservative justices walked in knowing the argument that they wanted to make, um, and so they were they were ready to go with, okay, come on now, um, just as. But the thing was, I don't think anybody was expecting that. Everybody was kind of thinking on the four other justices' sides that were that were saying, come on, this is. This is propaganda and you know it. It's not even this case by itself, but whenever there's always frustrating decisions like this from SCOTUS, I, it conflicts so much with, I feel like what I learned in like high school English and speech where red herrings can't do that. Straw mans can't do that. Like don't, don't, no, 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 that's, you don't do that in, but that's exactly what this is all being built on right now. Mm -hmm. Precisely because what's happening here is SCOTUS was uh, the conservative justices of SCOTUS, I should say, specifically, like pretty much Alito, even Kennedy kind of jumps in and does this too. They're they're basically just throwing as many what ifs against the wall as possible. Um, and just really trying to get this, this what if to say to, to find the what if that says, like the government can ban this. And they they specifically want it to sound like it's banned. They want they're they're looking for the word banned. And Malcolm Stewart is trying really, really hard not to use the word banned. Um, Funny and that you're so, talking about book bans now. <laughs> well, I I was gonna I'm gonna get to <laughs> oh, that. Oh, sorry, sorry. To, no, no, no. Spoilers. I, I, I'm gonna get to that. But um, you know, it gets really, really sticky there because I kind of want to just continuing this like pulse check. Everyone in the room is saying, "Oh my God, the government is saying that they can ban books. What ban books? That's a federally supported activity. What do you mean?" And in hindsight, like you were saying, that's just so funny because we have so many news stories like we're not we're not leaning one side or the other. There are so many news stories that are saying, well, this book is being banned or we can't read this book or this book is indoctrinating children to do this thing. And here in the highest court in the land, they are they are literally gasping at the idea of like, oh, my God, what do you mean banning a book that's that's sacrilegious. What What do you mean? And that was 20 years ago, like like a little less than 20 years ago. And then again, the FEC starts trying to talk, trying to be objective about this. And they're saying, listen, this isn't about banning speech. Nobody's nobody's infringing uh, First Amendment rights. Nobody's, nobody's rights are being violated. What we are talking about here, the regulation is that money need cannot be used like corporate funds, corporate treasury money cannot be used to produce materials that contain language that is considered electioneering. That's what they're saying. Like full stop. Isn't there still like that 30 to 60 day window too? Like, or did I, did, was that because with the whole like ban thing, like my response to that would be like, well, it's and even if you want to take that route, it's not a ban. It's just like a, a, a delay, a hold off, like a, hang on a sec. Yes. You know, there's an election coming up. Like, yes. Cool your jets. But nobody's nobody's looking at that. And I think I think at this point in the arguments, this is where where Malcolm Stewart is being like, OK, I have to do damage control because they are literally like they Losing are thinking that I admitted that we should be banning books. And I'm really just saying, like, no, between 30 to 60 days of an election, <laughs> you can't do this. Like, that's what we're saying. We're going to stop. 
Um, but I think he's just so in over his head at this point that they're like, oh, yeah, there's no way. Um, built by SCOTUS. And so, so again, he's, he's make he's making this point that it's not about banning anything. It's about saying that we have to regulate the kind of money that creates materials that gets consumed by the, by the public in a very specific period of time that uses very specific language. That's what we're regulating. And then the Supreme court jumps back and says, but that's a really, really narrow distinction. And the average person isn't going to make that link there there. That's, that's kind of their argument, which is funny because if we look at other Supreme court cases, and this is the inconsistency of the Supreme court, we know this, we it's, it's a joke among all law students. Like it's you hear one case and that's one case because, because you hear other things where it's like, I mean, I think about, I mean, if we're really going to dust off our con law stuff, like when we talk about like the Obamacare ruling and they were like, withholding 10% of government funds is too much, but withholding 5% for not changing the legal drinking age, <laughs> that's okay. But 10% is just too much. We can't ask for that. So it's, it's, it's things like that. That is just, what's the line? They decide the line. I don't Pick know. and choose. Yes. Um, so, so what they, what they end up saying, you know, at the end of the day, you're saying, if it follows a certain set of rules, the government can ban something as sacred as a book. That's, that's what you're saying. And he has to jump and, and Stuart then has to jump in and saying, if it follows those rules, I, I guess we can prohibit and regulate that thing. Yes. That's how this whole thing ends. And then they go back and they do their deliberations and it's like days and days and days and days and days. Nobody hears anything. We we have no idea. And we really don't know where it's going to sit because we've got the nine justices. We've got four on one side saying, this is silly. Why are we even doing this? And then we've got four justices on the other side that are saying, oh my gosh, banning books. We've got this incrimination of free speech. And then we've got the one man in the middle who is Justice Anthony Kennedy. And he has always historically been considered the swing boat. He just recently retired, but you know, at the, and, and the thing is he sometimes is all about conservative causes and he's sometimes totally about the liberal causes. So, I mean, I think you can think about one way or another. I mean, he was the swing vote for gun rights, but then he was also the swing vote for allowing and, uh, you know, making same-sex marriage legal. So it, it really, we don't know, we never know, we never knew where he was going to swing. And so essentially what ends up happening is they come back out at the end of this session or they come out at the end of the session and they they come out and they they have all their opinions. And at the very end, after reading all of the opinions that they, they heard for that session, they come out and they say, we're going to rehear this case next time. And part of that, according to legend, part of that is um, this was at the same time that Justice Souter, who was one of the liberal justices at the time, uh, was really upset about this case. And Souter was basically saying, I'm looking at you, Justice John Roberts. If you if you throw this out, no one is going to take your court seriously. And he had they, they say he had this dissent all ready to go. So the story is that they came out and said, we're not going to hear it. This, we're not going to decide. We're going to rehear it so that they could have Souter retire and go go on his hikes and be be as man of the woods that they all thought he was. And then they were going to 
to come back and have a, a, a less scathing descent if on however they decided. But once that happened, everybody knew what the decision was. Everybody knew it was going to happen. And so at this point, instead of having Suter, that's when we get Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So um, so really, on in the 2010 decision, she is the one who is dissenting, not Justice Souter, um, or within the within the dissenting uh, opinions. Then we get a lot of arguments about why this why these F- FEC rules are unconstitutional, and this is all penned specifically by Justice Anthony Kennedy. Again, there's another legend that his favorite book, and this actually is is very well known. His favorite book is 1984. He he has always talked about how it is the pinnacle of literature, telling us that the government cannot limit things that you do. He is very he is very much anti 1984, um, and so a lot of people believe that that helped him make this decision, come to this decision. Um, so he explains that the American people turn to corporate companies all the time. They're the experts. Why would you not listen to a corporate, you know, why would you not listen to a corporate organization that works on infrastructure and they give you an opinion about how to improve roads? Why would you not listen to that? Or, you know, they they argue that corporate institutions, they understand certain public issues more than even the public does. And we should be we should listen to what they have to say. And so what he's saying is the political arena is no different. And so we should allow corporations to be able to endorse candidates that they want. I I mean, (laughs) that's his argument. That's his argument. And this is the big thing too. He's basically saying that if we put these, allowed these regulations to continue, we were we would be essentially limiting the speech of any american speech of any individual americans which now looking back whenever we hear that phrase like corporations are people too like when we we make that joke it is in direct reference to citizens united because what citizens united is basically saying is a corporation is as much a person who has an opinion as any other individual in the united states and they should be allowed to endorse who they want yeah, doesn't make whatever. a lot of people, doesn't make a lot of people happy. Um, so here's the thing: I don't necessarily want to go out on a limb and say that this was the right decision. I don't want to say that it was the wrong decision, but I will go out on a limb and say that Justice Kennedy does make some good points. And some of the points that he makes in his in his opinion are that you know if we were to keep these regulations up. Let's think about other organizations, the ACLU, the NAACP. Those places could not formally endorse a candidate they want or or someone who you know supports their issues or supports their causes. And so I I can hear that. There are some organizations like nonprofits or you know organizations that that focus specifically on you know, human rights issues that we we tend to give them a little bit more grace to say the things that they want. And if we were to really follow this to the letter, we wouldn't let those organizations have the voice that they have. I can hear that. I can hear that. I can hear what he's saying there. He also kind of explains that when we're talking about this media exemption, that could get really messy. And 
basically what we're saying is what if this media organization is a subsidiary for a bigger company? And so like one of the examples that's used is NBC used to be owned by General Electric. So if NBC is supposed to be a news source that's that's giving information and has a media exemption to support or endorse a specific candidate, are we allow are we saying that we're also allowing General Electric to make that same claim? So it's things like that. So okay. you can you can hear it. You can you gotta give you gotta give them that. But what they weren't thinking about though was the way that money is now funneled into campaign finance in ways that I really don't believe that the justices thought would happen. There's actually a point in time, uh, several years later, Kennedy is speaking at, a, is doing like a Q&A at a, at a college and someone asks him, do you regret your decision? Because think about all the dark money that's being funneled in, in places. And his argument is, I don't regret it because now we live in the age of the internet. You could find out anything within 24 hours and we have disclosure laws. So I I think that I think that we made a good choice. Um, so you know that's that's where they are. That's where they are. It's just it's assuming that people go out and like look for that information too. Right. It's assuming that, but it's also assuming it's also assuming that there are no loopholes, and we can't argue that there are no loopholes. With that, that is the story, and the de- the deciding opinion on Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission. I learned a lot more about that case than I ever thought I would. Um, Me too. And <laughs> Me it's actually too. it's actually much more compelling than I thought it would be. Um, I was just like, oh, this is that this is that weird case about about corporations and yeah. uh, it's that boring case. But I'm like, wait a minute, we got some juice here. I do have before we before we cut. I do have a couple of questions that I have that I'm like curious what you think, and that is, so we've got Citizens United. Like this is a thing that is on the books now. We have this idea that corporations do not have a restriction on the ways in which they can provide their their treasury money uh, to candidates. Do you think that's something that is still relevant today? Actually, let me let me reframe that question. Do you think that the things that the conservative justices were so concerned about are things that we should be still be concerned about now? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's room for concern and limiting speech i get when you brand something when you wrap really like anything up with the term freedom around it like that's kind of like a lock up and that's just kind of like a a normal human response when there's a feeling of something that you have is going to get taken away it's a very just like reactive no 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 stop that but i just i have such a hard time taking this decision seriously in the face of I mean, the book bans that are happening literally right now across the country. Like I, I, I peruse Reddit a lot more than I should probably. And I'm hearing about, I, I think the most recent story I heard was like a Dolly Parton, like setting up a way for people, it's, it's kids in States where books are being banned to access books a different way or public libraries in other States are setting it up. So people that are like, I think the max age is like 18. You can sign up and get books online that are banned in your state. So all of this, this, I, I find it so hard to take this decision seriously when the conservative justices, like the the political alignment there, it just it it doesn't add up. So I, I think my answer is I'm I'm skeptical, but I mean that's kind of a, a feeling that I've held ever since our first few weeks in our con law class together. After I, actually after sitting in that class and then like 
seeing Roe v. Wade get overturned, like while we were sitting in that class. Okay, what? Like, how, yeah. how do I study for this test? Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I have to agree with you, and I, I, I think it is the, it is, I think there is a very deep irony in this case itself. Is that the whole kind of the whole point of this was? It almost felt as if there was a voice, there was a political voice that felt like they were being silenced for being conservative. And so they kind of pushed their way to say like, it's, it doesn't matter what the speech is, speech should be allowed. And I find that very ironic now when we look at, I'm trying to say this as, um, as neutral like as a- possible. It's, yeah. it's, it's that, you know, it almost sounds like those same voices that were very much arguing that we are being silenced and and we should be allowed to say things even if people disagree with it. And we are now in a place where there are, I was a teacher for five years. I remember like there are books that are like, you know, and Tango Makes Three, which was a book about two penguins at the zoo, which was a real story that two male penguins took in a took in an egg and raised, you know, a penguin baby by baby together. And, you know, a book like that being banned, because how can you share that children's book with with impressionable minds or even these don't say gay rules in in mm-hmm. places like Florida that there's there's a limit on what you can say and and what you can tell certain people. And it's out of it's it's being birthed out of the same argument that was that was essentially saying we're being silenced for saying this thing. And now we we're seeing a push that's saying there is a specific type of message that should not be sent because it's oppressive, it's it's damaging. Mm-hmm. What what is it? So, I mean, if they're if they're gonna have an opinion, like back it up. Don't don't choose where where it applies. Or, or and I know like this is it's the Supreme Court, and it, this is coming from like states and school districts, but it's, it's still like the it all it's what breeds skepticism within, I mean, like up and coming law students and attorneys right now where it's like, okay. Right. Essentially, it almost essentially speaks to, it speaks to the message of the time, you know, that's uh, at the time there was, there was a fear that there was, there was a voice that was going to be silenced. And now we are in a very similar situation and history is repeating itself, but in almost in like a very equal and opposite way. um, I would almost argue my final question for you is uh do you think the framers would really want to limit corporates corporation speech i think the framers had no idea how big corporations were going to get like that the i'm i'm also just the whole opinion of the original framers stance like okay i as as a gay son of two immigrants from mexico i and whenever it's like with the framers <laughs> i'm like yeah, they probably wouldn't want me here to begin with. So <laughs> right, right. I yeah, I but if if we're gonna go that route, no, I, I don't think the framers had any idea the the enormity of corporations, the influence that corporations would have. Uh I'm still even like digesting exactly how much influence corporations have because I mean prior to I mean, I just prior to just these past couple of years where it seems like you can just get a lot more information online from a source like even Twitter. If I thought of a corporation, it'd be like, yes, like a business. And now it's like, no, no, no. There is a lot more going on than it's just a business. You have them, you have a corporation like Google, a, a search engine corporation, just 
its arms reaching out to so many places and having a lot more of a say in your day to day. So no, I don't, I don't think the framers really, I, I may have just completely blocked the original question out, but I don't think the framers really understood or had, had a grasp of exactly what, whatever their thinking was, would have an influence on how that would have an influence on modern corporations today. Going back to when you were walking me through the oral arguments and how it became this whole thing about a book. I, and maybe this is a, a, a completely framed by my own personal experience, but it is a whole lot more difficult to get someone to read a book than it is to watch a 90 minute movie. Like here, right. w- pop this movie on. Okay, sure. Whatever it's going. Oh, okay. Now I'm paying attention. A book like, okay, get someone to, to get your copy of a book and actually like start paging through it, reading, comprehending and digesting everything that's happening. And like it's apples and oranges. Yep. I hear that. But I mean, I even even thinking about like your your answer to like, is this what the framers would want us to do? I don't even know if the original framers argument is an argument we can use very much anymore. Just when we think about, especially like, did the framers want corporations to have this kind of speech? What are we considering a corporation? Are we considering right. the CEO a corporation? Or are we considering uh, the the entity itself? Are we considering the people that work for them because they are agents of that or- organization? Are they... Are they part of the the corporation? Should should they not be allowed to say things? So I I don't know. I don't I don't think like I I agree with what you're saying. I don't yeah. think they they predicted this idea that it was going to kind of corporations would would touch as much of yeah. Will a corporation lives. have a reach beyond like its state that it's located in? Which I, I mean, I remember talking about that in Civ Pro. Like, well, you know, back in the day, <laughs> doing business meant like there was really no. The internet wasn't a thing. Did the framers imagine a literal I'm electric talking to you on box, Zoom right now. A literal yeah. electric box like like sending you information one way or another? Probably not. Probably they probably didn't see it that way. I had a good t- I had a good talk with you. I know that I did most of the talking, but um I did a lot of learning today. Um <laughs> th- thank you for letting me absorb. That's all from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.